Well, hello, and welcome to the second edition of See You Out of Court, a podcast all about resolving disputes without going to the court. My name is Graham Ross. Today we'll be discussing the somewhat sensitive issue of compulsory mediation. Should the courts require the parties before they can have the benefit of their judge making a binding ruling on their case, be required to try and settle the matter between themselves with the assistance of a mediator. There's been a court decision that, given an indication of some more positive attitude by the judges in this regard, and I'll be talking about this to Diana Wallace, and I will also be talking about co-mediation, benefits of having more than one mediator with another experienced lawyer and mediator, Roger Levitt. But first, some news items. Well, there's only one global news story, of course, and that's COVID-19. And it has already had an effect on mediation. Firstly, as courts are closing and therefore slowing down their procedures, suddenly mediation becomes more attractive as a speedy way of resolving disputes. And of course, as mediation typically takes place in person, mediators are having to find ways of doing it online. In most cases, they are reverting to video conferencing, such as Skype for business, Click Meeting, and Zoom. Zoom appears to be the most popular, partly because it's been offering breakout rooms. And as you may know, an important aspect of the way people mediate is that as well as having meetings with both parties or all parties, if there's more than two, there will also be separate sessions. These video conferencing facilities and platforms are not, of course, designed specifically for mediation. And some problems being encountered focuses on Zoom. There's been instances of what's called Zoom bombing, with people crashing into meetings and displaying inappropriate material. Zoom in April has issued a statement admitting that there are a number of security and privacy issues. They've also admitted that there are problems with the waiting room facility much used by mediators. And a research unit at the University of Toronto has issued a very detailed report culminating in advice not to use Zoom at the present time for any confidential discussions and in fact not to use specifically the waiting room, until various changes have been made by Zoom. There is information on this with advice for mediators to reduce the risk that you can find at seeyououtofcourt.com. There's been a hint recently in a UK court that we may be heading to some form of compulsory mediation. Mediation is of course a voluntary process that requires the agreement of all sides to the dispute. Surely a justice system ought to be one that does all it can to encourage the parties to try to resolve their disputes themselves. Earlier this year there were some comments made by Sir Geoffrey Voss, the Chancellor of the High Court, sitting in the Business and Property Court in Manchester, in the case of McParland and another against Whitehead, that gave some indication of the way the judiciary is looking at mediation in perhaps a much more positive light than one might say previously. 
We have seen an increasing encouragement, of course, of judges towards mediation, often punishing parties in costs for refusing unreasonably to mediate. But are we getting anywhere closer to making mediation compulsory? The comments of Sir Geoffrey Voss, whilst not about mediation specifically, but about the powers of a judge to order more cooperation between the parties generally in attempting to reach a resolution themselves, are certainly encouraging. I have an interview later on in this podcast with Diana Wallace discussing where this leads us in the issue of compulsory mediation. I'm now talking to Roger Levitt. Roger uh, has been a solicitor for 36 years, a mediator for the past 11 years, uh, specialising in property and business. And Roger was listed in the Legal 500, very authoritative tone, uh, showing the best of lawyers and mediators in the country, and is listed as a leading mediator in the latest edition of the Legal 500. Roger, thank you very much for uh, talking to me on this podcast. Um, I I know that uh, I want to ask you about something that you, that you have done, not every mediator has done, something called co-mediation. Um, now, I gather that involves more than one mediator, because one mediator is the norm. Um, but tell me, what are these sort of circumstances where having a second mediator might actually be helpful? Okay, there are two types of situations where I find that co-mediation is particularly useful. The first is where two people uh, with separate disciplines make the uh, resolution of the dispute that, that much easier. Uh, so, for example, uh, I would co-mediate with a surveyor mediator for a boundary dispute. And right. that is particularly helpful because those types of disputes uh, commonly involve uh, situations where there's disputes over uh, the legal documentation, the title, and the, uh, the the boundary line itself, and yeah. the surveyor is perfectly positioned to uh, get, express a view on, on the boundary line, and the uh, solicitor, in my case, uh, can help with uh, looking at the, the the title deeds and the, uh, the the title plan. So bring bring the two together. And you've got a situation where, if, if the uh, if the settlement is agreed based on a, a site inspection uh, and looking at the legal title uh, documents, the the surveyor is then able to uh, bring his practical experience to bear and help to chart the the, the agreed boundary position. Uh, and so that makes a lot of sense. And I can see, uh, you know, there is always this issue with um, disputes over some uh, some quality of work done or some uh, something in which there is a there is a need to have some specialist knowledge of, of the industry if it's building or as you say uh, boundary disputes uh, the lawyer 
mediator may not have that in-depth knowledge and vice versa if you're just going to have a building a, a surveyor mediator and there are of course many many of them for precisely these sort of disputes he or she may not be that knowledgeable about the legal background the litigation background and the issues of law um, that may be relevant so that does make a lot of sense but um but tell me, how does it actually work in practice? I mean, is, is there a, a lead mediator and the second mediator is there as almost expert advisor to the mediator? Uh, or, or, or do they both um, play the lead role? Who, who leads the conversations with the parties, whether joint uh, or, or private? Um, how does it work in practice? Are there any rules, or do you you just operate it in as practical way as seems appropriate? Well, it's it's a very very good question because um, in in my experience, I've actually worked both, where you have two mediators who are equally experienced, who sit sit down before the mediation and say, "Look, we're going to play this." Um, in a in an ad hoc way, sometimes I'll lead. Sometimes you lead. Uh, we'll we'll see exactly how uh, the conversations go according to you know, where where we are in the discussions. Uh, so that that's that's one way of doing it. Um, I think it's probably simpler if you agree beforehand who who's the lead and who's the assistant. Right. Um, in 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 real terms, um, it probably doesn't make that much difference. But I think, in presentational terms to the parties, they they look at one as as the lead and one as the the assistant. Um, okay, so he's not in the example you gave of the boundary dispute. He's not there as an expert witness, as for example, it might be, or the the norm in litigation, where the there is a decision decided by the judge, and there may be expert evidence to help the court. Um, in this case, he's acting fully as a mediator, and presumably he would um, provide the same duties of confidentiality to each party as you do. Is that right? Do they? Do they Absolutely. The, the same. The co yes, the the you know the, the co-mediators obviously both sign the mediation agreement. They're both bound by confidentiality. Um, in in the situation that I described with with the boundary dispute, the, uh, the the surveyor would more likely lead the discussion when it comes to the the practicalities of the uh, plotting out the the boundary. Mm. But the, the the solicitor would lead in in uh, in looking at the the title documents. So the flex the flexibility of the model is is one of its great strengths yeah have you ever done uh, international co-mediation in international disputes at all uh i've done i've mediated on my own internationally but but um not not um co-mediator co -mediator, but but i've i've co-mediated um with one of the uh what i call the pioneer mediators the right. The mediators who've been mediating for 25 plus years, where where I have been the assistant and and he was the lead, uh, and it was in a uh, 
the, the, the other uh, type of example that I use for promoting co-mediation, and that's where it's a multi-party dispute, where right. the uh, the ability for one person to manage multiple rooms uh, become, becomes uh, very very challenging, and and with co-mediators, it, it's easier to to divide up the, the the tasks and the conversations between the different rooms. Uh, I should just add for the listener that when you refer to rooms, what you're referring to, of course, is the, and this is fundamental to mediation, one of the reasons why it's so successful in helping people to resolve disputes is that the mediator will have private conversations with each or all parties separately. What is said in one private conversation will not be disclosed to the other party or parties without specific permission and vice versa, so that the mediator gets to talk confidentium and hopefully bring out as much relevant information uh, as possible from both sides, uh, um, uh, which is a very unique position. The lawyer tends to only get it from one side, of course, because he's partial. So where you're having the rooms, the, the co-mediator would would um, might undertake some of the uh, private conversation with one party alone and the other mediator may, may they may divide that according to the matter or I suppose the, the matter in question and the expertise required. Um, yeah, and yeah. The, the advantage of, of that also is that there's less downtime for, for the people in the separate rooms where there's multiple rooms. Uh, yes, you well, could have them at the same time instead of that business where you're a mediator talking in private to party A and party B is uh, fiddling with his thumbs in, uh, in, in the corridors or whatever, waiting to be called in. Um, a, it's, uh, yes, yeah, so I can see you can have uh, parallel sessions, so you're saving time and hopefully therefore saving money. I'll come back to that point about money in a minute, an obvious okay. question. Um, but also it avoids this concern of the parties doing nothing, where knowing is talking about the other party worrying what he's talking about I can see that yeah uh, and um, why well, I mentioned international because of course I can see also the benefit where 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 you're spanning different cultures and of course language mm. and if one if the parties uh, you know are from different countries with different languages um, ideally because mediation is all about fully understanding what people are saying, which seems to me a fundamental um, skill there for a mediator to be a very, very good listener and really understand. Sometimes you have to have these conversations in your own first language and the own first language has to be shared with the parties. Otherwise, no matter how good you are in another language, you, you, you might not get the significance fully of what's being said. Um, that's that's in interesting that, that you should say that because um, eight years ago I, I co-founded a, a multi-faith mediation group uh, which, which is called BIMA and we, we are a group which is comprised of people uh, who have different faiths, different religions, different genders uh, 
and we set it up originally with the aim of helping people to resolve disputes across uh, religious faith uh, and gender um, backgrounds so that we would we would uh, present a, uh, a co-mediation team of different faiths, different genders. I suppose I mentioned costs briefly earlier, and it comes back to that question. Uh, are, are, the, are the parties paying twice the fee, then, if they have two mediators? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, because I normally um, uh, deal with that in my uh, introduction. Um, the the simple answer is you you don't pay double. It's not an opportunity to 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 do that because um, the the mediation will stand whatever fee it stands, and the mediators share the fee. They might share it in different proportions, but that's a matter for them. But right. but, but you 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 share the fee um, and. Uh, so, so really, as far as the participants are concerned, it's it, it, it really is two for the price of one. And yeah. who who what's not to like about that? <laughs> yeah. Right. And one one hopes that, 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 that not just two for the price of one, but uh, an increased opportunity, an, ex an increased prospect of a successful outcome. Roger, it's been a delight talking to you. Uh, congratulations on making the Legal 500 as leading mediator. Uh, and um, congratulations on your work in, in, in co-mediation. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Well, I'm delighted to talk now with Diana Wallace. Diana is a lawyer and mediator and lecturer at Hull University Law Faculty as well as her legal and mediation career dana has had a career as a politician being for 12 years a member of the european parliament for the lib dems and during that time uh, she was honored with the role of vice president of the european parliament for five years past president of the european law institute past member of the board of the international mediation institute Diana, I'd like to take your thoughts on a, a news item I mentioned earlier in this podcast on the subject of compulsory mediation. It's a sensitive subject. What, what's your views generally about that subject? And then we'll come come back to this recent obiter dicta, if you like, on, on a case. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously this whole area of, of compulsion is very uh, interesting. And of course, on first encounter, it sounds completely counterintuitive to all of us who feel strongly about mediation and see mediation absolutely as a voluntary process. But I think we've got to be careful to distinguish what the compulsion is about. And I see the compulsion as being about getting parties to sit down and think about mediation, to be told about mediation. Because the sadness is we, we still live in an environment where most of us assume that disputes have to be settled in court. And there's just not enough publicity um, and knowledge given to the alternatives, particularly mediation. So 
it's not surprising that people might feel uneasy about using this system but let's at least give everybody the chance to sit down with a mediator or somebody that could be called a mediation advocate to at least be told what this entails what it involves and indeed as you've mentioned what might be the consequences if they unreasonably refuse to participate um, in in terms of cost penalties at the end of a case so really to make sure that people have all the information um, and you know that the, the story about mediation and its positive outcomes is is put before them so that they have that opportunity so compulsion to know about mediation and i would even say compulsion to try mediation i i would be prepared to go that far so that sounds a little bit like what we'd call myams mediation information and awareness meeting mm. that was introduced for family disputes would you see something following the, the mayam process it could well be. I mean, I think the problem with the, the system, if you can call it a system that we, we have at the moment, is that it, it, it leaves litigants when they commence a court case in, in a position of, of having a complete lack of knowledge or an uncertain amount of knowledge as to what might be the outcomes if they don't mediate. So somehow or other, we, we've got to evolve a system that gives people information about alternatives, particularly mediation at the outset, and gives them good information. And I, I entirely take your point um, that the about Myams or in, indeed other systems that have been used with small claims, good quality advice at that initial point, independent advice um, from properly qualified mediators, I think, you know, would be the answer but whether we're going to get to that stage uh, is, is of course another matter in terms of funding yes but in my view that's you know that's what you need and, and this in no way um takes away you know, should take away the rights of access to the courts you know the right under the european mm. convention etc that's been clearly laid out that it, it it doesn't affect that you know some of the comments after Halsey were a complete overreaction in my view we still know that you know you can always at any point opt out of um, mediation um, and, and, and go back to the courts. So and even if it's forced on, on the party yeah. who really doesn't want to, all he has to do is not agree with uh, exactly. not, not agreement. So yeah. it's yeah. hardly a, a threat to their rights. Yeah, it's it's the, not a threat to, to, uh, at all. You know, and it was quite funny. I, I digress a bit, but I did some um, mediation role play with my, my students in Hull yesterday. And one of them in the role play was trying to describe to the parties how he he viewed mediation he said come on we're just gonna sit down and have a cuppa and a chat <laughs> and I rather liked that because he yeah. grasped you know the informality but the way in which you need to to get to people to yeah. e explain that this is a non-threatening yeah. process and in fact I mentioned the the, the the recent comment I think it was by Sir Geoffrey Voss in the case, I think the name of Parland and Whitehead, who was reflecting on a previous 
decision in the case of Lomas. Can you briefly explain what that what that was? Well, first of all, I think to, to get it into perspective, the, the McFarlane case that, that Jeffrey Voss was dealing with is very much a case about um, the new disclosure rules. Um, so the comments he made about uh, mediation were very much, in a sense, aside to the main point. Yeah. That said, he made it pretty clear that he thought, following on from Lomax and Lomax, which was a dispute about inheritance, so a probate dispute, uh, Lomax and Lomax, he thought he had power under the rules to order early neutral evaluation. He didn't say anything about mediation. Um, but of course, this got a lot of people excited um, what Voss, I think, said to the parties during the McFarlane case is, look, you're going to have discovery. After discovery, don't you think you really ought to try um, mediation? And by the way, look at what was said in Lomax and Lomax. But in fact, you know, Voss didn't have to go there because the parties actually agreed um, that they would, after discovery, uh, try mediation. Riding on the back of this reference to early neutral evaluation, he specifically pulls out mediation and more or less indicates to the parties, well, you know, I'm thinking about whether I can exercise this power under this rule. And of course, people subsequent to that have suggested, why don't we amend this rule in the civil procedure rules to specifically add a reference to mediation. So I see this as another step towards a future where the judge is positive in regard to encouragement towards mediation, which can't be a bad thing. No, I, I would hope so. If you bear in mind, um, and I think it's always uh, important to look behind these sorts of things, so Geoffrey Voss is, is our most senior commercial judge. Um, I had the pleasure to work with him on a report that we did at the European Law Institute on the relationship before, between formal and informal justice. And this is a judge that gets ADR, that understands mediation. Um, and therefore, I think when we have somebody like that making such a comment, that is, is, is helpful leadership um, in terms of the direction that our courts may take. And I think the mo most important point you made in explaining uh, the benefits of uh, at least having an early meeting with a mediator is to is because most people really although they know the word they hear about it in various contexts i think for most people i find if i mention it who don't really understand it they they think it's part of the process of of a divorce or something because that's of course the field that it's been more commonly used so have the courts as they are increasingly around the world incorporating mediation referrals or services within the procedures and services as a court that they offer, then that itself will also help to gain more publicity. Dana, many, many thanks for your time. Thank in, you. And speaking to me and uh, look forward to uh, talking to you again in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening to See You Out of Court. Remember, more information always at seeyououtofcourt.com. 
uh, on the next episode we'll be going into in more detail uh, about the various technology solutions available for resolving disputes whether to mediators or to people in dispute themselves and this is not just involving video conferencing but also message based systems and some clever pieces of software that utilize artificial intelligence to help the, nudge the parties into resolution more about that in the next episode of see you out of court thank you